Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists and food makers, farmers, authors and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good weekend to you food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. I hope that you are healthy and safe and I always love sharing my table with you. This is where delicious dialogue happens. Recipes and tips for marvelous meals are shared on this show. You'll gain ideas every weekend on how to live well and eat well, because this show is for people who love to cook or love to eat. I like to say, if you're one or both, we can definitely be friends. And every week, I tell you about my favorite cutting-edge recipes and distinguished authors, artisans, and chefs foods and restaurants, even gadgets for your kitchen. Of course, I dish on food and wine and cocktails, on trends and a little bit of tech, and of course, we will get back to travel. And so I hope that you will continue to tune in. Please visit chefjamie.com as well if you'd like to become a more confident cook. And check out Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen for my daily dish. So let's get this party started, shall we? Can we talk about BLTs, please? Because BLTs make me happy. And right now we could all use a little happy, don't you think? I like to kick off this show with a tutorial of sorts, a technique to make you the best cook you know, to make you what I call a culinary hero. And sheltering at home, breakfast, lunch, dinner, two snacks, maybe more, I will say, uh, is um, as much as I love to cook, uh, definitely a feat. Yes, I am supporting local restaurants and doing takeout and some curbside pickup and definitely delivery, but there is something to be said about the perfect sandwich, and a BLT falls under that for sure. There's something beautifully simple about a BLT. All of its parts have to be just perfect for it to come together wonderfully. And what inspired this conversation is actually one that happened a few weeks past. I hope you recall or heard about it. Mark Stevens was here and we were talking talking about COVID cooking. And I asked him uh, what he had been up to. And he said, I'm making my own bacon. Well, it was an inspiring conversation because I got lots of emails from so many of you great cooks asking how to make homemade bacon at home. He shared his ingredients and a sort of shortcut method, but he really didn't give all the particulars. So stay tuned. Just wait. It's worth it. It's the bonus recipe this week, and I'll tell you how to get it. I'm sharing my homemade bacon recipe for the first time, in fact, here on the radio. But back to BLTs. So there was a wonderful piece written for Tasting Table a while back that highlighted the simple beauty of a BLT. And when we were having parties and inviting friends over, I had a BLT party. I lined the kitchen countertop with brown butcher paper. I set out a big pile of crispy, smoky, delicious bacon. I sliced heirloom tomatoes and I put out crisp romaine lettuce and bacon mayo. More on that in a moment. 
and country bread and I put my toaster on the counter alongside and I had avocados and sriracha and the other condiments and we had a DIY, a do-it-yourself BLT party. And needless to say, it was really delicious and super fun. And so there you have it. That's a BLT party. Whether it's a party for one or a party for many, your friends will want to come. Maybe you should make it a virtual party and then they'll really look forward to it when we're all back to social time. But I will gladly share my double bacon BLT recipe. You just have to email me. It is the bonus recipe this week. And by the way, there is an added bonus. So I do make homemade bacon. I've made it a couple of times, to be very honest. Um, I, like you, have a, a busy life. And so with that said, I have cured my own bacon a couple of times, uh, post-culinary school and then sometime past that. I do have a favorite butcher, and I do buy applewood smoke bacon. I also order bacon if I want the truly smoky Benton's bacon, which is my favorite from Alan Benton. Uh, but you will need to order pork belly from your local butcher or your grocery store. Maybe not right now, but you know, weeks or months down the road. And you will need to find curing salt. You can order it online. But once you make homemade bacon... I will tell you, there's almost nothing better. And I have a recipe for it, which I will gladly share as the second bonus. So if you're looking for a homemade bacon recipe, or you would like my double bacon BLT recipe written out with ingredients and a method to make you a culinary hero in your own home, just email me, jamie, J-A-M-I-E at chefjamie.com. I'll share my best bacon tips as well. Once again, it's Jamie, J-A-M-I-E, at chefjamie.com. Okay, let's get on to food news this week, shall we? This is good news, good food news, in fact, because I'm proud to share this information. There are a a handful, I, I would like to say a gluttony, of companies that are giving back to COVID-19 relief. And three of them are food companies that I'd like to highlight because there is, I think, good news to share and we could all use a little bit of that right now. So I'm bringing you a few of my favorite things. I actually partnered with dailylounge.com and did a TV piece on this, which I hope you saw in your city. But here goes. America's original butcher, Omaha Steaks, is a fifth-generation family-owned company, right? And they provide all-American grain-fed beef and gourmet foods. They've been doing it for over 100 years. If you're an Omaha Steaks fan, well, then you've been an Omaha Steaks fan for a long time. They have devotees. What I love is that they have donated 100,000 servings of protein through the Feeding America network of food banks just thus far. And they are continuing to provide millions of meals for families in need. So you can give back by purchasing specially marked combos at omahasteaks.com and they will make a donation to Feeding America. Pretty cool, right? Now, if you're a wine lover, I am a Coravin lover. And if you don't know it, it is the Coravin system. You simply insert the Coravin, which is a needle, and it's very simple to press into the cork of a bottle. You tip and pour, 
And literally, you never take or remove the cork from a bottle of wine, which means you can drink or serve the wine you want and not have to finish the whole bottle, which means you can use a bit to braise or you can pour yourself a glass without ever removing the cork. It really is a genius system and you never have to worry about wasting and you preserve what is left in the bottle for weeks, months. They've even tested it for years. Well, Coravin has been um, in my bar or on top of my bar uh, for years now, but Coravin is also giving back and 10% of the proceeds from purchases made on their website is going to COVID relief. So kudos to Coravin. Last but not least, I am a wonderful pistachios fan. You know that green bag? And I have to tell you, I was really delighted to find out recently that wonderful pistachios have six grams of protein in a serving. So they're a really easy snack that pack a punch of protein. And I have been snack crazy lately. So they introduced these new flavors, chili roasted and honey roasted, and I am addicted. So when you stream a movie at night or your favorite TV show, Open up a bag of wonderful pistachios, no shells, roasted and salted, then you don't have any mess, and snack away and know that wonderful pistachios is giving back as well, and that makes me proud to tell you about them. So that's food news for this week, and good news on bacon, right? J-A-M-I-E at chefjamie.com for those bonus recipes. And don't touch your dial, please, because there's lots more fabulous food coming up in your radio. Later this hour, Chloe Frechette is here. And she is super smart and crazy tiki. Yes, there is a tiki revolution happening. And so we're going to mix up some easy tiki cocktails. The Berkshire's Farm Table Cookbook is so homegrown and so beautiful. And I am thrilled to be able to share recipes from the hills of New England. Take a virtual tour with me because Alisa Spongin Bildner is here and we're going to nod to the great farmers of America. So stay tuned. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio with lots more fabulous food right after this. Grab a glass because we're sipping and savoring. Welcome back. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. We're toasting new wine finds today with Paul Kalamkarian, and I am so thirsty for it. You see, Paul is the second generation president and owner of the original Wine of the Month Club, having taken over the business from his dad, Paul Sr., who still enjoys a great glass of wine at age 91. Paul has tasted upwards of 100,000 wines, truly making him an expert. And his podcast, Wine Talks, shares insight into the wonderful world of wine. 
I really appreciate Paul's deeply rooted love for the grape. And he believes that wine is one of the only creations in the world that can represent a region and say, this is who we are. So Paul is back to dish. He's sharing his most recent tasting notes. And I am delighted to have you back during wine drinking times, Paul, if I may say. Uh, I hope you're healthy and safe. I am. Thank you very much. We're, uh, we're, because we were deemed essential by Governor Newsom here, which we're very, very happy he did do that. Yes. Uh, we're practicing all the proper uh, precautions. Yes. To uh, My staff is six feet apart. They'll have masks, and we have Purell everywhere. <laughs> and, but we're still tasting on Tuesdays, so the vendors are coming in. They're wearing gloves. We're pouring wines and getting through it. Well, good. I'm glad to hear that. And it seems that wine lovers are even more so appreciative of the wine delivery that comes because I think we are all savoring the bottle at night and enjoying a glass and and maybe appreciating appreciating it rather a little bit more. I wonder what the state of wine is today in your opinion with the pandemic. I feel bad. I really feel bad in some conversations with friends and family because we we're selling a lot of wine. Not I don't mean that with tongue-in-cheek because people are drinking more. I think they're beginning to appreciate more the value of a glass of wine at yes. nighttime, uh, whether it's stress or just the, the day's events that ask you to, yourself to shut down a little bit and have a glass of wine. So we're, we're selling a lot. Uh, in the direct-to-consumer market, they call this, is growing. And I, what, I, what I find really interesting, and most of, the, most of us are saying, is it may dip a little after all this is over. Mm-hmm. But I think the idea of having wine delivered to your door uh, based on what you want is going to stick around for a while. Well, I think that's a good thing. I think we've all um, had to embrace the direct delivery idea. I mean, I have everything delivered to the door now, and I'm very grateful for the you know, progressive nature of our land and uh, technology and all of those wonderful things. But there is beauty in having things that you enjoy and rejoice in delivered monthly to look forward to, to educate with, to entertain with. And wine is one of those. So I'm glad to hear that the direct-to-consumer wine market is growing because for for those that deliver like you, uh, great wines and wineries who have wine clubs, if they can continue to uh, to please their the palates of their wine list, then I think we all grow our wine knowledge, our appreciation, our palates as well. For sure, and I I, I want to encourage all your listeners to to participate in that, particularly with wineries that they enjoy and the the character and the winemaker philosophy, because. A lot of the wineries were caught off guard with this. They, they relied on foot traffic in the tasting room and right. club sales, mm. and they weren't as robustly ready to handle direct-to-consumer online marketing. And they're going to start coming around, and you can keep your winery happy by, by supporting the brands that they're, they're sending in the mail because it's going to be important. It's a very difficult time for both 
wineries that weren't prepared and restaurants as you know it's going to be very difficult to recover yes oh of course and supporting local and the wineries that you've loved and savored for so long you could take a virtual trip there right when you open the bottle at night and i find and have found from friends and conversation online and through social media as well that wine tasting is very well done socially distanced so, you know, now is the time to pull out some of those bottles that you have that might be uh, cellared for a while or some of the more interesting finds. I know you and I talked for a brief moment before we got on the air here and you're finding a lot more conversation going on about interesting, unique varietals and sort of a, an, a more exploratory time right now. Well, it does. You know, I, I just did this little sort of musing on, on LinkedIn the other day about, you know, drinking the same thing. And, and uh, one comment was made to me by somebody at a party, like, I only drink Opus. And I'm like, oh, well, that's, you know, well, how do I think about this? But, right. you know, I have friends, for instance, that, that love Napa cabs, and, I, and they're gorgeous wines, of course, uh, you know, set on the road to the wine world in the 70s. But after a while, particularly with this COVID thing, we're home and we open that same cab. We're kind of going, gee, it's the same flavors as I tasted last night, which I think with cuisine, you want to change, mix up your cuisine, of course. And so we're starting to see people experimenting with other varietals uh, through the mail as well. So I'm selling things that maybe two months ago I would have never sold. Uh, price ranges I would have never sold in. I sold, we sold Camus for. Uh, liter bottles for $100. We sold some hmm. beautiful Austin Hope Cabernet from Paso Robles for, for $40, things that not normally would have sold. And now they're looking for me for Pinots and, and Riojas and Tanats and different flavors. Hmm. And I think a lot of that has to do with we're home. Yes. We're, we don't want to look at the same painting in, in our living room <laughs> every day. We may want to change those up. And sure. now we're looking at wine varietals that have different profiles to entertain our palates a little bit. I love savoring wine with you, and I would like to extend an invitation for you to come back. We talked about tasting together, to doing a, a, a live radio tasting next time, a white and a red of your choice from the Wine of the Month Club, uh, because I can't think of anyone better to do it with than the man who tastes over 400 wines a month from around the globe. You know what they say in the biz, count me in. Yeah, well, count me in too. Tough job, Paul, really. You know. Yeah, yeah right. Uh huh. Sure. <laughs> Can't wait to have you back. Thank you. Wait a I yes. taste a lot of bad wines, too. Okay? I, so, I know. So. I, let me get out my mini violin. Hold on. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you are uh, now a, an essential part of this program, our wine tasting expert guru, I'm going to call you. And so when you come back next, I look forward to sipping and savoring with you some more. Um, please stay, stay, stay healthy and safe. And thank, thank you. you for giving us a, a wine and sipping update. I appreciate Always it. Always my pleasure. Thank you. Wine of the Month Club is the oldest sustained mail-order wine club in the U.S., founded in 1972 by Paul K. Sr., succeeded in ownership by his son. You just heard him, Paul K. Jr. And as I said, he does taste excessively for us. He's a giver. His search for wine club selections never end. It's like having a personal sommelier, and you can learn more at wineofthemonthclub.com and follow his daily tastings on social at the same Wine of the Month Club. When we come back, there is lots more to sink your teeth into. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Don't go away. 
Welcome back. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Food tells a story. And we are virtually traveling today to a beautiful place in America. So come with us. The Berkshire Hills of Western Massachusetts are famous for their unique culture, their scenic views, the artistic and literary attractions. In addition to the region's classic landmarks, the Berkshires also boast an impressive number of family-run farms. And together with local restaurants, when you visit there, you are treated to heartwarming and homegrown food. And Elisa Spungen Builder is bringing Western Massachusetts to you. The Berkshire's Farm Table Cookbook tells the story of family-run agriculture through the language of food. It is a, a beautiful book that pays homage to family-run agriculture who, that shares the language of food, the relationship between the earth and what we eat. And it is a beautiful portrait of this absolutely glorious place. I am delighted that Elisa is here to dish, and I hope that you are healthy and safe today. This book is not only chock full of recipes, Elisa, but what a gorgeous read. Thank you. I really appreciate it. I hope you're healthy as well. And thank, thank you for you. having me on the show. Yes, really of course. My pleasure. Uh, well, I should mention that uh, he's not on the line right now, but my husband, Rob Bildner, who is a co-author, yes. did the photograph. Did he really? Which you so beautifully described, which is this area, which is a gorgeous area. Oh. That I hope you can all travel to and uh, <laughs> see for yourself. Yes, we, we will travel again. I know we will. Uh, we will get through this together. I didn't know that the photography was his. It really is beautiful. I love that we're talking today and at this moment because I think we need to be ever mindful of the farmers in this country that make it possible to put beautiful produce on our plates. And I wonder how the family-run farms in your area are doing of late. One of the things that we have tried to do is keep up with all of the people who we interviewed for the book, what they're doing right now. So many of them, as I'm sure in your area as well, um, are, are selling directly. They're figuring out a way to uh, to you know, market their stuff without farmers markets because right now we don't have farmer mar- farmers markets open in our community. I know some places do, and I'm not sure. I know people in uh, your audience are all over the country. Some of you may or may not have farmers markets, but people are working to figure out ways to do it. So many of the people we interviewed said the following: They said, you know, what's really important about supporting small family farms. We, you know, we very possibly are the food of the future. We are not going to be able to, because of, because of carbon footprints, because of climate change, because of so many factors, we cannot always depend on shipping our food all over the country. And we will have to rely on regional farmers. We will have to rely on them uh, for food and not on agribusiness um, only. Oh, and, and I think, yes, it's plentiful. And I think there is such a power in it in that the freshness aspect of it the uh, the ability to support the community around you the idea that you're uh, eating from the earth and doing you know good things to better the planet itself. There are so many beautiful virtues of local community farms, and there are more than we think of them. So embracing them now is the silver lining to me of, you know, this pandemic and quarantine that we've all been through is it's made us mindful. And your book does that. There is a a very common passion uh, for, I know, your family and those that live around you for the land that you live on and the food that is grown. And from the cheesemakers to the farmers to the restaurateurs, 
there is a deeply rooted love there and it shines through. I think that's what heartwarmed me reading through the book is that I felt connected. Oh, I, I love it. I truly appreciate it. And you did just such a beautiful um, description of why local food is important and why it's important to support family um, farms. My husband and I were in the food distribution and uh, for years, and so we're very much familiar with the whole distribution. We had a, a company that did really well in terms of getting food quickly across country, and, um, whether we were getting our food from Florida or California or whatever, with what you can do for yourself and your family by buying food straight from a farm or from a farmer's market or buying in a supermarket locally labeled foods. That food will get there in a nanosecond relative to what the other distribution channels are mm. able to do, you know, buying from family farms or local farms. Yes, and your book brings light to that. It also brings delectable recipes to our kitchens. So let's talk about what's fresh now. Uh, These are 125 homegrown recipes from the New England Hills. And the New England Hills are hot for sweet corn. Just seeing the gentleman on page 19 bite into an ear of fresh sweet corn like that makes my mouth water. Alisa, I have to tell you. So let's make sweet corn pancakes because that will be the first recipe that I make from your book. The recipes are inspired by the, by the farmers. Mm-hmm. So we visited Howden Farm, saw he, he grew uh, corn and pumpkins. He's well-known for a particular pumpkin variety or several pumpkin varieties. And we were working with a wonderful chef named Brian Alberg, who's also on the cover of the book. Yes. And Brian helped us draft all of the initial recipes inspired by the farmers. The chefs did give us recipes because that's what they do. Right. And we adapted their recipes for the book as well. But I wanted to be very clear about how these recipes around. Yeah, but I love that because it feels so collaborative. Like I want to learn the secrets and the insights from each individual chef and comrade that I come across that uh, I have the privilege of befriending, whether it be through my radio show or travel or uh, continuing education. And that's what your book gave to me is that I thought, oh, I'm going to make that recipe from Howden Farm. And then uh Oh, Hawk Dance Farm and Ross and Brook have to be growing tomatoes and peaches. They must know what's best to do with them. I'm going to make tomato, peach, and cucumber salad as soon as the peaches are fragrant come, what, another few weeks, a month or so. Great. You know, you mentioned a really good point that I'd like to bring out, which is the recipes are predicated on um, relatively simple ingredients. This is not a complicated cookbook. Um, and purposely so. Uh, the, the ingredient list, I'm not going to tell you there are you know, five ingredients. They're usually not. But they're relatively small numbers of ingredients. And they're, the recipes are designed to showcase the food when it comes to market. So when you talk about a peach salad, yes, you can make it all year long. True. We can walk into almost any store in the country and get the peaches and all the ingredients that we might need for our food. But if you want to really, really max out your recipes, mm. you start with food in season. And, and I, it's a good mantra. I think we need to reinforce it. I will tell you, I will never forget, ever, I had a friend who carried a basket of peaches from Georgia on his lap on an airplane to bring me what was the best tasting, juiciest peach dripped down my chin, eaten over the sink while standing up I have ever had. And that food memory is still so vibrant in my, in my mind. And there is something to be said for a, a peach in season and a peach salad that is so succulent or a melon that is so aromatic when you cut through it. 
that you think you'll never get a better melon than that. And for those of us with a passion for food, everyone that, that, uh, that unites here, I will say that is something really extraordinary. That's one of life's most unique, precious, wonderfully memorable moments. And if you can capture that, I think that's the joy that we all need to embrace in every day, today especially. Not only are you highlighting the extraordinary hard work and passion and diligence of those that farm around where you are privileged to live, but you're bringing insight and inspiration and innovation to cooks across the country who really can embrace the beautiful flavor that comes from what we grow and what we are so blessed to consume. And the book is inspiring. Uh, I'm really thrilled for uh, yours and your husband and your family's success in the food industry, but I am ever grateful for the fact that you're paying it forward and highlighting a region that really is uh, doing beautiful work for the betterment of all of us. Bringing Western Massachusetts to you, Elisa Spungen Builder, along with Robert Bildner, uh, they are telling the stories of family-run agriculture through the language of food. And it's a book that you should read and embrace and hold close and be inspired by. I'm making sweet corn pancakes, parsnip bread for sure. Elisa, I love parsnips. I was raised on parsnips in, in chicken soup. The carrot soup with sage and mint, the vegetable and goat cheese lasagna, and so much more. Celebrating the lush landscape of the Western New England area, the book is called The Berkshire's Farm Table Cookbook, and it's really a a beautiful painted picture of the relationship between the earth and what we eat. So please check it out. On Amazon, you will find it highly rated. Again, the entitled the Berkshire's Farm Table Cookbook. Uh, We will continue to follow your escapades, Elisa. Um, Continued success to your son, the chef, of course. And please stay healthy and well. Thank you for sharing your passion and for paying it forward from the beautiful place that you live. Jamie, thank you so much. It was really a pleasure. It was my pleasure. There is lots more to feed your soul coming up in your radio. Chef Jamie Gwen, be right back. Cheers and welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. I am so eager for this next talk because we are delving deep into cocktail culture. Chloe Frechette is the senior editor at Punch and the author of the just-released Easy Tiki, a modern revival of 60 tropical tiki drinks that has reached number one status on Amazon. She has a master's degree in history of design from the Royal College of Art, where she earned distinction for her research on the material culture of cocktail consumption. Fascinating, right? Chloe has dropped by to dish and stir things up, and I am so glad. Welcome, Chloe. I hope that you are healthy and safe today. Thank you. Happy to be here. Drinking no. well, so can't complain. Right. <laughs> exactly. I'm sure you're drinking well in your house. Um, the book is 
fabulous and fascinating and intriguing to me um, because I remember Trader Vic's growing up and you have extraordinary knowledge and history uh, that you have studied over years, many, many, uh, of the, the tiki cocktail and this movement. And I would love for you to give us some background and tell us why we have to give thanks to Don the Beachcomber, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's Tiki is a funny term because it wasn't even a term that was used at the time that Don the Beachcomber hmm. began serving his zombies and his pearl divers in 1934. But it's a term that we've subsequently given to the drinks that came out of his bars and Trader Vic's bars. Um, and so looking at the cocktails, one of the the most succinct definitions I've heard comes from Jeff Beach Bumberry, who owns a, a tiki bar down in New Orleans. He says tiki is a Caribbean drink squared or cubed. And what mm. he means by that is tiki cocktails multiply each component of a traditional punch. So everyone knows punch is sour, sweet, strong, and weak. A tiki cocktail will take each of those elements and multiply them. So you'll have lime and grapefruit. You'll have simple syrup and maple syrup as your sweet component. And then most importantly, for your strong component, your rum, you're going to have multiple rums. And that's really what tiki cocktails are all about and why they have a reputation as being strong and hangover-inducing. Yes, Um, and, and the more the merrier when it comes to liquors. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So no Trader doubt. Vic actually was the one who started playing around with putting not just rum, but what happens when you put rum and gin and cognac in a drink, which he did in his fog cutter. So that's sort of what Tiki's all about. Yes. And you have an incredible education and the prose and the writing throughout the book is really extraordinary. I have so enjoyed sitting down. I feel like I've received such an education. The book is is far more than recipes. The inspiration for it, you say, is because we're in the midst of the second golden age of tiki. It's a really good time to toast. There are times when I think tiki feels especially poised to succeed. Hmm. I mean, when the genre was born in 1934, um, it was fresh on the heels of repeal. So bargoers readily embraced the flamboyant nature of the drinks and the bars after 13 years of discreet drinking during Prohibition. And now I think people are eager as ever to embrace any bit of escapism that they can. Especially Um, now, yes. Especially now, exactly. And I think it's so interesting. You talk about tiki bars across the country, but who knew? I mean, there really is a resurgence. And I love the fact that we're embracing, I guess, the, the historical aspect of it, but also the resurgence, the the gentrification and bringing back these old ideals and the warmth and the feeling that comes from the lifestyle, right? Because it Tiki was associated with the easy life um, Mm -hmm. and really elevating it to a modern approach. You've done it in the book. I thought it was really um, quite amazing, though, that you talk about the easy life, the easy life. Mm -hmm. But tiki drinks are some of the hardest to make. I mean, you're talking a laundry list of ingredients. There's this really funny disconnect between sort of the overall impression of the tiki lifestyle which, as you say, is sort of this laid-back lifestyle, and the difficulty of making the drinks, which are, without a doubt, among the most complicated and labor-intensive to make. 
um, often calling on upwards of 10 ingredients and complicated syrups, and the list goes on. So this book, Easy Tiki, it aims to correct that disconnect Mm -hmm. without sacrificing any of the complexity, um, and I don't mean complicatedness, but the complexity of the flavors in the finished drink. And that's what has always made tiki so compelling in the first cl- in the first place. So in the book, I try and capture that essence in six ingredients or fewer, which is might sound like a lot, but by tiki standards, that's nothing. Um, so I worked with some top bartenders to really channel all of that essential tikiness into hmm. drinks that are easily made at home. Tikiness. I love that word. <laughs> I think I just made it up. I like it. I'm going to add a little tikiness to my next cocktail party. I like that. Well, you certainly are keeping the tiki dream alive. And kudos to you. Um, the book is really inspiring and full of just knowledge and education and insight and inspiration. Um, and it's seriously fun. And for anyone who has a, a a love for tiki, I will say, or is looking to acquire a new passion, uh, it definitely could be addictive. I have loved thumbing through the pages and learning. So uh, congratulations to you. May the book continue to thrive at number one in your division on Amazon. Thank you very much. Stay healthy. And so that brings us to the end of another hour of gastronomic inspiration. If food is your fetish, well, then I hope I supplied the tools and I hope you'll tune in next weekend and allow me to make you hungry for more. I'll leave you with my last bite for the hour. I like to call it my last ounce or tidbit of culinary conversation. It is National Walnut Day. I know, I love food holidays. Might sound a bit odd, but it was the perfect opportunity to share my recipe for way too easy candied walnuts. No oven, no egg white, no fryer. Just five minutes and you will have gloriously addictive candied walnuts for salads or for sweets. Uh, That's if you can resist eating them as a cocktail snack. You don't need to toast the nuts first. They toast in the pan as they caramelize. Literally, it is way too easy. I will post the recipe on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram today. And so you'll be able to grab it and steal it and make them. And these way too easy candy walnuts, they won't last, but I hope you enjoy them. I'll meet you here next weekend as well. I hope for more delicious conversation in your radio. I thank you once again for listening. I hope you stay healthy and safe. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off, and I hope you continue to eat well. 